This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Gorgon. We here at the Word of the Week, as we have said before, love and hate a good mystery. As our recent exploration of the relationship between the Forgotten Realms deity Kosuth and the real-life Hungarian revolutionary leader Kosuth demonstrated, we have a compulsion to solve mysteries that borders on fanaticism. We simply can't leave a question unanswered. When it comes to tracking down the origins of various gaming concepts, things often get mired in confusion. The sort of confusion that is born of mistaken identities, misremembered half-truths, secrets, omissions, and sometimes even lies. We can be led astray by strange claims whose truth we can't determine that were made hundreds or even thousands of years ago. And in the end, we usually just have to make our best guess based on all the evidence we can find. In short, we can pile up facts until we're blue in the face, but they will never be complete, and when all is said and done, we're just going to have to decide what we believe and what we don't, what's true and what's not. And thus begins our journey into the convoluted origins of not one, but two iconic fantasy monsters from the earliest days of Dungeons and Dragons, as well as iconic mythical warrior tribes and even superheroes. Well, actually, it all begins with a simple question. Why are there both Gorgons and Medusas in D&D? And how did the Gorgon end up being a metal bowl whose breath is so bad it will literally turn you to stone? If you know your D&D monster manual, you'll be familiar with both of the monsters of which we speak. If you know your Greek mythology, you're probably way ahead of us and already realizing that it's actually weird to have both of those monsters and have them be two separate things and have one of them be a metal bowl. But hold your horses there, partner. We've got to circle our wagons and make sure our posse is together before we can try to wrangle the truth out of that there bowl. Both the Medusa and the Gorgon were described in the original D&D white box set. That is, the set of three rulebooks that introduced the game of D&D to the wider world, written by E. Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson and published in 1974 by Tactical Studies Rules. The creatures were described in the second volume of said set, the appropriately named Monsters and Treasure, and the description in the book was pretty limited. Medusae, being the plural of Medusa, were described as human-type monsters with the lower body of a snake, a human torso and head, and tresses which are asps. It is noted that the bite of the asps injects a deadly poison, and also that the Medusae can turn any person who looks into her eyes into stone, and that they are intelligent will often attempt to beguile victims into looking at them. Now, we don't want to editorialize, but as scams go, that's a pretty poor one. Come on, baby, look into my eyes. Sure, my gaze turns all people into stone, but you're such a big, strong man that it probably won't work on you. But then, Considering you were stuck with whatever intelligence score three six-sided dice handed you, more than one fighting man probably fell for it. Meanwhile, the Gorgon had a bit more limited description. They were described as bull-like monsters with scales of iron covering their hides and a breath that turned anyone to stone who was caught in its cloud. As the editions wore on, both the Medusae and the Gorgons were updated and revised and gradually they became more detailed. 
The first revision came in the third supplement to the original D&D game by Gary Gygax and his friend Brian Bloom. That mess, Eldritch Wizardry, added such wonderful things to the game as the totally different from magic psychic ability system known as psionics, and the nature priest but different druid who, interestingly, was never, ever allowed to gain psychic powers. And neither was the monk. For reasons, probably. But beyond setting the precedent for turning some specialized aspect of some class into a completely different class of its own that Pathfinder would eventually use to justify crushing everyone under the weight of a thousand different source books and starting an argument about psionics that is still being fought to this day, Eldritch Wizardry also took the time to add some detail to both Medusae and Gorgons. Specifically, it noted that Medusae could also see ghosts and astrally projecting wizards and petrify them, whereas the Gorgon existed in the same reality as ghosts and astrally projecting wizards as well as in the normal world, so it could trample and gore anything material, incorporeal, or astral. And we're sure that was super important for some reason. Over the years and additions, Gorgons changed very little. They remained ironclad bulls with death breath, though they did pick up vague associations with the elemental plane of Earth. Meanwhile, Medusae remained vicious, spiteful, greedy, snake-haired ladies who turned people to stone with a look. They lost their snake tails, though, and gained a pair of legs. And for some reason, they also gained a penchant for archery. In some of the weirder settings for D&D, they also gained a matriarchal warrior society. And remember that, kids. That's foreshadowing. For later. Now, if you're not among the mythologically inclined, you might be wondering why we're talking about these two monsters together, and why we think it's weird that both of these monsters should exist. Well, to put it simply, we think it's weird because we know our classical Greek mythology. And that means we know a few things about the creatures that inspired those names. For one thing, we know that there isn't a society or species of Medusae. There was just one. Her proper name was Medusa. And for another thing, we know that Medusa was a Gorgon. And we don't mean she was part of a species. We mean she was one of three sisters that shared the name Gorgon. Sort of. To explain all that, we have to go back to one of the oldest Panhellenic mythic heroes of all time. And before we do that, we have to set something else straight. None of this has anything to do with cheese. Since we're talking about name origins here, you might be wondering if the name of the trio of serpent sisters and the name of an ironhide bull with deadly halitosis might have something to do with a blue-veined Italian cheese called Gorgonzola. The answer is no. The cheese is named after a town on the outskirts of the Italian city of Milan, Gorgonzola. The village was a no-name little backwater during the time of the Romans until the nearby city of Argentia was sacked by invading Huns in the 5th century. Then, fleeing refugees took refuge in the village's church. The refugees stayed around, and the village became one of the most populous in the area. As for the origin of the name, it seems to come from the Latin phrase Curta Argentia. Curta is a Latin word that means to stop briefly or to shorten and it referred to a place where travelers could change horses and rest briefly during a long trip. Like, say, to Argentia. Over time, the name went from Curta Argentia to Curta Argentola, and then to Gorgontiola, and finally Gorgonzola. 
and then in the 13th century, they started making their signature blue cheese. So there's no connection between the stink of Italian cheese and the breath of a deadly bull. But we digress. Let's talk about Medusa Gorgon and her sisters Steno and Eureli. Now these three ladies have almost come up several times in past episodes, but we wisely left them out because we couldn't discuss them when we talked about jellyfish, or medusae, back in our episode about the hydra. Nor could we talk about them as the children of the monster mommy and daddy Echidna and Typhon in our episode about typhoons. And that's because we knew that the moment we mentioned them, we'd be facing down the barrel of the Gorgon conundrum. Why is the Gorgon in D&D as a metal bowl when Gorgon was basically the surname of Medusa and her two siblings? And that would swallow the whole episode, especially if we got into lie detector tests in Wonder Woman. Yeah, we'll get there. Anyway, the Gorgons were originally depicted as hideous winged demons with serpentine hair, large eyes, wide mouths, long tongues, tusks, flaring nostrils, and coarse beards. And they were among the monsters sired by Typhon and Echidna, the hideous snake monster primordial we've talked about before. Depending on who you read. Because this is where things start to get messy. Technically, According to the older stories, the Gorgons were actually the grandchildren of the gruesome Greek twosome that sired every terrible monster in the world. In actuality, they were the children of Typhon and Echidna's kid, the primordial Gorgon, who Zeus slew at the start of the Titan War for control of the world. And Zeus took the hideous face of Gorgon and stapled it to a shield. And by the way, her name seems to be derived from ancient Greek words that either mean terrible goat or fierce storm or both. And she was also called Capra, which is why the terrible goat monster in Dark Souls is called the Capra Demon. But things actually get more complicated than this, because Medusa Gorgon was, according to some stories, adopted. Sure, she was a hideous winged snake-haired demon lady, so there were never any awkward questions about why she didn't look like her sisters, but looked a lot like Helios or Zeus or the pool boy or whatever. In an art, she was gradually humanized and lost the beard and the tusks. But she did lack one thing that her sisters had. She wasn't immortal. And that will be very important in a moment. Also, we should mention that some sources say the Gorgon ladies lived in Libya. Just remember that for later. Anyway, Medusa was mortal. And later myths explained that that was because she wasn't really a Gorgon at all. She had been a beautiful woman who had been turned into a Gorgon by a spiteful goddess. What happened, according to the story, was that Poseidon, the god of the earth and sea, fell in love with the beautiful mortal woman Medusa. And the two of them decided to get really intimate in one of Athena's temples. And Athena was a little offended. So she turned Medusa into a Gorgon of such legendary ugliness that any man who looked upon her face would turn instantly to stone. And that brings us around to the story of Perseus. If you've seen Clash of the Titans, either the old one with the excellent Ray Harryhausen stop-motion animation and the terrible robot owl, or the new one with the excellent special effects and the terrible 3D effects, you know almost nothing accurate about the story of Perseus. Okay, that's not fair. There's bits and pieces, but not much. Now, Perseus is pretty much the original mythological hero of the ancient Greek stories. 
And we don't mean that myths state that he did his thing three generations before Heracles was even an adulterous sparkle in his father's halo. We literally mean that he's pretty much the first demigod hero we have any records of the Greeks telling stories about. And he was born the way pretty much all Greek demigods were born. Zeus turned into something weird and had an affair with a mortal woman. The mortal woman in this case was Danae, the daughter of King Acrisius of Argos. Now, Acrisius had it on good authority from the oracle at Delphi that his daughter Danae was someday going to give birth to a kid who would overthrow him and take the throne of Argos. So, he did what any dad who read any fairy tale ever did. He locked his daughter in a tower. But Zeus appeared, either because he was smitten with Danae or because he was punishing Acrisius for his pride, or both, and turned into a... And we are not making this up. Zeus turned into a shower of golden sparkles, seduced Danae, and impregnated her. At least, that's one version. Another version by a historian named Apollodorus states that it wasn't so much a shower of golden sparkles that knocked up Danae, as it was Acrisius' brother, Proetus. Either way, when he found out that Danae had given birth to a son, the level-headed and rational King Acrisius sealed them both, mother and son, in a box and cast them out to sea. Zeus asked Poseidon to guide them somewhere safe instead of drowning them forever. Danae and the kid Perseus were rescued by a fisherman named Dictus, who lived on the island of Seraphis. Now, Dictus' mother was a sea nymph, but that doesn't really matter. We just mention it casually. What was important was that Dictus's brother, Polydectes, was the king of Seraphis. And over the years, as Perseus grew, Polydectes fell in love with Danae. But he didn't really want a son, and he didn't like Perseus. So he found a way to trick Perseus into promising to do one heroic favor, no questions asked, for the king. And King Polydectes asked for the head of Medusa the Gorgon. Polydictes figured the task would be impossible. Sure, Medusa was mortal, but her gaze turned men to stone. And her two sisters, Eurale and Stheno, lived with her and were super alert and also totally immortal. Even if Perseus did manage to kill Medusa, he'd never get out of there alive. Now, we'd love to tell this story in detail, but we've got a lot of ground to cover yet, so we have to sum up. Athena, who liked Perseus and wasn't a fan of Medusa, decided to help Perseus. She told him where to steal a magical clairvoyant eye, a hat of invisibility, and some winged sandals. She also talked Hermes into giving Perseus the adamant sickle we mentioned in our episode on adamant. She also gave Perseus a shiny bronze shield. Using all of those tools, Perseus was able to sneak into the Gorgon's lair without alerting the sisters. By watching her reflection in the shield, Perseus was able to approach Medusa without getting turned to stone and using the adamant sickle, he was able to remove her head. Then he saves a girl from a giant fish unleashed by some jealous sirens, and later accidentally killed his grandfather. But he didn't keep the throne. He gave it away to Proetus. Oh, and he named his daughter Gorgophony, which we mentioned because it's actually kind of messed up to name your kid after a hideous monster you were tricked into slaying with a golf bag of magical artifacts at the behest of an unscrupulous king who was trying to get rid of you so he could date your mom. Notice how nowhere in that story is there a bull made of metal with deadly breath who turns people to stone. Weird, huh? I mean, there are a pair of metal bulls in Greek mythology who stomp around and breathe fire. 
They are the, and apologies to our producer and performer who has to pronounce this, they are the Kalkotarioi, the bulls of Colchis, from the story of Jason and the Argonauts. Or rather, Argonautica by Apollonius Rhodius, the original myth on which the story of Jason and the Argonauts was based. Now, it's entirely possible that Gygax wanted to include the Kalkotori as monsters in D&D, but found the name, as our producer no doubt has, a bit much. But it's more likely that Gygax went hunting for details about the bulls in a particular book that we are pretty sure he read. And there he found the Gorgon. As we've mentioned before many times, many naturalists throughout history have compiled the accounts of strange creatures from foreign lands into encyclopedias that became the authority on weird beasts that totally really existed somewhere in the world for reals we swear and promise. And one of those books was written by an English cleric in 1607. It was called The History of Four-Footed Beasts. And honestly, it was mainly a compilation of information from earlier such natural encyclopedias. Well, that is, if you compare it to other earlier works, you can see where Topsell got his information, even though he himself denied claims of drawing on the works like Conrad Gessner's Historiae Animalium. His history described a number of well-known facts about various animals, such as the fact that toads have a stone in their skulls that will protect you from poison, and that weasels have babies from their ear holes, or that apes are afraid of snails, and that mice can spawn right out of the ground. How do we know Gygax read this book? Well, because Topsail had some unique and obscure interpretations of some animals. For example, he imagined Lamia, the child-eating demon queen, not as the serpent she is usually depicted as, but as a half-woman, half-lion. And guess which description got into Dungeons and Dragons? Topsail also conflates the foul-smelling cow-like monster known as a Catoblopas, which got an episode of its own with other cow-like monsters from Africa, and specifically Libya, and he names them the Gorgons. And that seems to be the explanation. Gygax used Topsil's Gorgon instead of the mythical Greek one. But that does leave a question. Why the heck does Topsil think a Gorgon is a stench cow and not a serpent lady? Fortunately, Topsil explains that the myth of Perseus is actually wrong. See, Topsil says that Perseus didn't really fight demon ladies at all. That's just a bunch of mythical hokum. Perseus actually killed an Amazon queen named Medusa in Libya. And those Amazon warriors had wild, crazy manes of hair. And they also kept, as pets, terrible cow-like beasts who also had wild, shaggy manes of hair. And that is why everyone talks about snake hair and why the real Gorgons were the cow beasts and not the Amazons. Simple, right? Well, here's the thing. Topsil may not be entirely crazy. First of all, he did note that the creature he is calling a Gorgon or a Libyan beast is a monster Pliny the Elder described as the Catobaplus because of its downcast gaze. But second, and more importantly, his idea that Perseus fought Amazons instead of Gorgons is actually based on a very old theory about the truth behind the Perseus myth. Because it was originally posited by historian Dodorus of Sicily in the first century BCE. Now, we should note that Dodorus actually posited that the Gorgons and the Amazons were two different warrior women tribes. There's a problem with putting any stock in this theory. 
The Amazons were basically an example of a pop culture fandom that got a little crazy in ancient Greece, whose origins got totally lost and confused and involved in some pretty crazy stuff. Which, by the way, is exactly what happened with the modern Amazon superheroine Wonder Woman. But that's a story we'll have to finish next week. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. Thank you.